Hello and welcome to episode 125 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike and not the professional spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago and with me on the line from beautiful Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, this is of course the best radio. What's that? What's that? Soccer shirt? Jersey? Kit? It's a kit. What well, is I'm- it? It's it's from the Odessa local Ukrainian National League team. As you know, Shane, I'm from Odessa, Ukraine. Mm, okay. And one of the last times I went there, I picked up their local soccer kit. Oh, well, how many times have you been there? After I was born, uh, I went back twice. The last time I was 27, I think. So like five, five-ish years ago. Wow, you still fit in clothes from when you were 27? That's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> David's tight. <laughs> <laughs> Also with us, the Godfather, Dave Harburger. Stan, that intro is a little too hot for radio, if you know what I'm saying. And I think we should just move along. This is a podcast. On this week's episode, we kick off the show with our reactions to the recent changes to organized play and the elimination of the MPL. We're going to keep that short, I promise you. I know everybody else has talked about it. Well, we're going to talk about it through our own particular lens. Of course. The dive down lens. Then we're diving into the latest collection of cards hitting Magic Arena. It's our top 25 picks to click from Historic Anthology 5. Will we buy them with gems or gold? Stay tuned to find out. But first, some housekeeping. Shout out to the newest patron to join the Dive Down Nation, Justin B. Hello, hello, and thank you. Are they, are they, are they, from, are they the Canadian patron? Some, it's, it's interesting. When people come in from different countries, sometimes it comes in in their currency. And it was like 10 Canadian dollars. And I was like, is that like, I don't even know how to compute that to American greenbacks. Well, one is a loon. And the other is a Canadian dollar. Also, big thanks to Martar MTG for leaving us a new review. They left us five Swift Spears, I think, out of five. You know, I couldn't ask for more than that. I would love to have five Swift Spears pretty much all the time. Yeah, Dave, you know, the most local player, not going to get deck checked. Just, just play five. I'm going to, I'm going to play with four regular ones. And then I'm going to play with a proxy that Ron from our, from our lovely community made for me of custom art with a custom quote on it and see if anybody says anything. Yeah, this is totally legit Swift Sphere. It's good to go. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us over at patreon.com slash the dive down where you can pay us directly. If you like what we do and you want us to do more of it, you know, sometimes maybe you're generous Maybe you want to give back to other creators. Do that too. Patreon, great platform to support the artists and content creators and digital marketing specialists and that you love. I mean, it's not all for us. You, know, you you do get stuff in return. I think I think the coolest stuff is just access to our amazing community over at the Super Secret Slack server. Uh, after that, you do get cool stickers, cool pins, play mats. You know, direct access to giving us some episode ideas that. We must always run with uh, at the highest tier. So yeah, we appreciate all the page patrons, Patreons out there. And uh, yeah, if you uh, want to keep us going, head on over patreon.com slash the dive down. I think it's page patrons. So it rhymes with yins like uh, like people Pittsburgh-ies. from Pittsburgh do. Yeah. Page yins. Speaking of yins, you can go to mana traders. Use sign up code the dive down 2021. That's our new code. The dive down 2021, they finally made us change it. It was all over those coupon pages or something like that, which I was fine with. I didn't actually see it there. I looked. Um, yeah, dive, the Dive Down 2021, all one word and numbers. It's 15% off your first 
two months now. This is apparently across the board, uh, two months for content creators. So, you know, it's, it's better than nothing. And it does help us out. And Mana Traders does rule. So I, I did finally get that text, by the way. I, I had Dredge out for like two weeks. And I'm like, hey, you up? And I was like, <laughs> I have no idea who you are. You're never getting your life in the loans back. They were like, we really only care about the dual lands. What card is even worth anything in Dredge online? Nothing's worth anything besides probably the, the fetches. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's like 170 tickets. All right, with all that out of the way, I'm going to kick it right back to Shane, who is on this week's news desk. Shane, anything big happened in the world of Magic the Gathering recently? Well, I'll I'll tell you what. Okay, before you skip past the breakdown here, okay? We know a lot of you have probably heard about this from other podcasts you listen to. You've probably read some articles, seen some tweets, but maybe a lot of you haven't. Maybe we're one of the few podcasts you listen to. Last Thursday, Wizards made an announcement on their magic.gg website. And it was entitled Esports Transitions and Getting Back to Gathering in all caps. So that's how it sounds in my mind. The primary message of this article was that high level play is still something Watsi wants to exist, but the lifestyle of being a pro player is gone. You aren't going to make a living playing Magic. You're not going to be paid by Watsi basically full stop, not as an MPL player, not as a Rivals player, not as some kind of renewed version of a Platinum Pro. And then following that announcement on Friday, uh, Watsi's PR person, main PR person, Blake, had an hour-long stream, truly brave of him, to further clarify the announcement and answer questions from chat live, which is truly something. Again, this is a funny thing for us to talk about, because if you pay attention to Wizards' organized play announcements, if you care about stuff like the MPL or high-level play, you have heard many takes on this from people who are far more able than us to give you a perspective on what this means for these types of players. And if you don't care about this, you're probably just kind of annoyed that you have to keep hearing about this. So I think what we should do is talk about why I think this is a really big deal for us as casual spikes, and it's worth us discussing a bit. We I think we should look at it through the lens of of the podcast and our listeners and talk about why we're excited and what these changes might mean for players like us. Yeah. I mean, really quickly, all I would say before we dive too much into that is I would say thanks to the people who were in the MPL who participated in it. Thank you for the years of content that you made and for participating in what was an experiment and turned out to go maybe not the way everybody hoped. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the memories. A lot of highs and lows, but I'll never forget the games along the way. Yeah. And it's, you know, these really were the best. They're some of the best players. There's many of the best players across a lot of different metrics. And so appreciate them taking the time to, to try it. So yeah, the, the next season, 2021 to 2022, the MPL rival season is going to be kind of is the last It's they're calling it sort of a bridge season. And importantly, they mentioned there still will be arena opens, other tournaments and those kind of and, and opens, hopefully in, in paper, perhaps is kind of what the gist is. COVID is the question mark. And Blake stressed that only the very highest level of play is being altered in some way. So high level play is not going away. So these things like world championships and the concept of like a pro tour slash mythic invitational is not going away. These are things that are going to stick around and going to be premier play that if you like watching that, if you like seeing the results of that, if you like seeing these types of players doing that kind of thing, they're going to be here. And also importantly, 
qualifying events are staying around as well in the future. Some concept of like a PTQ, Pro Tour qualifier. And this is where we start getting to what I consider casual spike territory. PTQs, those type of events are the type of things that I would find myself at a few times a year to try to test my skill, to try to get a chance to make it to something bigger back when, you know, paper pro tours were a thing. Did you ever go to one of these things and think that you were actually going to queue? Not think that you were, but, but feel like I'm prepared enough and good enough. And that that was really what your goal was at one of these things. No, right? Like, I don't think for the three of us or many of the people that listen to this, that there is ever really that goal in mind. Yeah. It's like the hope, right? I think the goal is to like, you know, go four, three, maybe, maybe like, you know, sniff the top eight now and then type of thing. But yeah, like going to like a 150 person event and coming out on top would be for me winning a pro tour. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. That That's the main thing I was getting at was that it's a trying to have an environment where you're playing against other people who are taking it seriously for the day. But we know that we're mostly the fish, right? And like, maybe <laughs> yeah. we'll put together a good run. Maybe we'll get some money. You know, people have had different different goals as far as that goes. But I think like most people, our aspirations were never to go to these things and actually end up on the pro tour. It was mostly go and have a good time at a high level of competition for us. Stan, I saw you narrowing your eyes. I, I wouldn't play in those events unless I wanted to do well. Whether or not I thought that I was capable of playing at the top tables, I think is another question. But it's not like I went there expecting to lose the handful of times I played in a PTQ. Yeah. Yeah. But what I'm saying is just, it's not like you were like, I'm going to go to this PTQ. And if I don't queue for this one, I'm so on point with this, this format right now that I'm going to go to the next one next weekend, the next one next weekend until like, like that's not us. correct. Yeah. There are I was people not that that following is. the grateful dead. Right. Yeah. Those are staying around these types of concepts, these types of events Outside events like Star City Games, MTG Melee events, which have been a real boon, I think, for people this year who are staying at home and wanting some kind of competitive environment. Those are things that are going to be around. They're not banning those. Those are things I think that they love having other people (laughs) organize for them. I think most importantly, Blake on the stream mentioned a rebalancing of priorities. He said that esports are very important but sucked up all of our resources. And the goal is to rebalance those resources and resources both being, I think, monetary and people resources and attention resources and time resources are going to be rebalanced in a way that I think will become what I've been sort of calling like the bigger tent of competitive play. And they specifically outlined five categories of what uh, these rebalancing of priorities will sort of fall into the buckets that they will fall into. One is friendly, which is things that like FNM playing with your friends at an LGS, even playing at home. Uh, I have some question marks what that means exactly, but I think we've seen some of those types of events, right? Like FNM at home. I think there've been other kind of events where you can get something for basically nothing. And I imagine that hopefully there's an increase in even what an FNM at home means beyond just playing a couple games and sending a code to your LGS, I hope that they are able to expand what friendly play means on Arena as well, right? Yeah, I'm always hoping that they're going to find different ways that are intriguing to play on Arena. You know, I've said a couple times, I wish that there was something in between the ladder, the sit and go like tournaments that there are leagues, the leagues, I guess I mean, and the opens. Like, I feel like there's a level missing in there that I wish was there, but. For sure. The second, and I think this is kind of 
the most casual spiky, the most kind of thing we were just talking about is aspirational play. And there are two categories of aspirational play in Blake's mind, at least. And one is to reach higher levels of play like a pro tour, like a mythic championship, something like that. Those are the kind of things that we've I think we've had in mind in the past, like the PTQ. The idea is to make it to the PT mythic championship qualifier. The idea is to make it to the mythic championship. Beyond that is something that I think really spoke to me, at least, which is this idea of a common aspirational goal, being known in your region, being known in your store, kind of the idea of celebrating a local end boss, like whether that's a store championship, something they mentioned specifically that I thought was cool is the idea of like an interstore championship. And I think what Blake said specifically that caught my ear was capture the feeling of great moments in gameplay. And I think capturing capturing a great moment for like a casual spike is a really important thing, I think, for Watsy to be restressing for players like us and I imagine most of our listeners, because that's where we do the majority of our playing. Like I see the this idea of aspirational as really appropriate to I think all of our mindsets, like we keep getting better, keep understanding why you're getting better and think about how you're playing and how you're improving. And the idea of aspiring to something greater is, you know, specifically why we have someone like aspiring spike on all the time. Why we call ourselves a casual spike podcast is because there's a competitive mindset and a growth mindset that I think this celebrates in a way that they haven't been able to do for a while. Yeah. Mostly due to COVID. Right. Like right up until COVID happened, we still had Grand Prix and that was still a thing that you could watch to see what non grinder would do well in top eight with their pet deck. You know, Daniel Wong is someone who comes to mind with his taking turns deck, although he's quite a bit better than a, you know, non grinder player. Um, But it's good to start seeing them thinking about different ways to approach this and kind of trying to be fun with it. Now, here's the thing that's hard about things like this. And I can tell you from from my experience a long time ago, like 20 years ago, when we ran the store, we had a lot of like grassroots ideas like this for local play, local championships, things like that. It's it's not easy to get a critical mass of players to come out for events all the time. And so I hope that they're really thinking about that aspect of it before they get too deep into some idea that is hard for people to attend or something like that. Cause you know, a big key about things these days is like asynchronousness, um, convenience, you know, to be able to try to get a critical mass of results for some kind of championship like this. So I hope they're, I hope they are considering that as they sketch up these kind of local things. And one example of something that used to happen back in the day that I don't know if you, you either of you remember or know about is that DCI numbers used to have ELO ratings associated with them, just like chess. And you could actually go and look up your ELO ranking and your competitors ELO ranking for people just around you and see what their ratings were. It was a bit more like the chess system where you could just see it was just public. And that led to some interesting rivalries where you would have people, you know, people come by and you would look up this person who was new to your store and you'd be like, whoa, they're like an 1800 <laughs> or 1900. Like, oh my gosh, good players here tonight. Like that kind of thing. That's fun. I don't, I'm not advocating for bringing that back, but there are positive aspects to being able to stoke competition at a grassroots level in a way that that did sometimes. Yeah. I think it's, that's, what's interesting to me, especially is just like the idea of, of focus back on the local, I think is important both for the recovery out of COVID when I think travel is still challenging. They still really have, I think no idea when the next something like a GP is and can be safely held 
what that means, how they're going to arrange that. Who's going to run it for them, honestly. But being able to focus back on the local, I think, is a really good idea and a really strong idea for players like us who get the majority of their play either at, at the LGS or maybe on Magic Arena or Magic Online. I'm a little impressed by how optimistic you guys are and how much of the announcement and post announcement cleanup you guys are willing to take at face value because I don't think we can really count on Wizards of the Coast to manage any type of organized play, high level organized play, because I don't think they've demonstrated a willingness to maintain that. And what we've seen even prior to the MPL and in the build up to the MPL is this ongoing dismantling of Wizards run organized high level play and you know, nurturing competitive high level competitors that I, I think if you read some of Blake's messaging between the lines, I just don't think they're willing to put any money behind that. And I don't know how else you can foster that type of environment unless you are willing to invest. And I do think, though, what we can potentially count on is either just LGS level events or regional events. And that's kind of it, because those are the only organizations we've seen willing to demonstrate any kind of growth and foresight and you know opportunities for players who have some competitive ambitions. Yeah, I think that's maybe one reason why I'm excited about this stand is because I think the thing that Watsi has done pretty successfully in the past and like Star City Games has done in the past too is like sort of kick it back to the local game store. Like say, hey, here's some resources and whether that's just like a play mat or some pins or some card rewards or something like that, right? Which is just like, here's some recognition that's through Watsi. And all we're providing is like the structure and maybe some fairly reasonably priced rewards. And we say that, yeah, not only is there this FNM thing that always exists, but there's a we have a schedule and a cadence for what the local events look like. And that's I don't think that's a high level of investment on Watsi's part. I think that's a just a, a different kind of organization and a different kind of prioritization in terms of how are we thinking about what organized play means. Right. And I don't think that necessarily says like we have to put a bunch of cash into this. It's just sort of like, what are we stressing and what are we thinking about more? So I think as we look ahead, sure, there's people who have ambitions of success within Magic the Gathering, whether that's at demonstrating their abilities as Magic players or doing something else. And I think the best case studies we have now of what it means to be a successful Magic player aren't the uh, Matt Nasses of the world. It's more like the aspiring Spikes and Caleb D's and LSVs who aren't just playing good magic, but they're really producing a ton of content. And we saw that as a staple of the MPL where part of your salary meant you had to stream. And I think that worked for some of those MPL members better than others. But I think if you have ambitions of being a magic competitor, I think those ambitions nowadays have to include more than just winning tournaments. I think you have to be willing to really put yourself out there and put yourself on screen or in a podcast or in an article and really demonstrate who you are and share your thinking and almost be a a teacher, if not influencer, in addition to actually just being a good player. Yeah, I think that's right on, Stan, because it's almost like if you can't be a pro competitor in Magic, if you want to be a pro in Magic in some way, you have to be a pro entertainer. And that is not necessarily something that everyone's going to make a transition successfully at all. And whether or not you're an entertainer in terms of like, hey, this is an entertaining person to watch stream. It could be an entertaining person to read or an informative person to read or an informative person to watch do a league 
on YouTube or on Twitch or something like that, right? Like there's a lot of different ways that people are entertained and doesn't have necessarily have to be like uh, an aspiring spike or a croquis or a saffron olive or any number of streamers who I'm uh, just forgetting right now. But I think you're right on Stan, which is like they're saying in sense is we can't, we can't and don't want to pay you for being great at just playing the game for better or for worse. And so this is a new way of thinking about what it means to be a pro magic individual. And that kind of brings us to sort of the next bucket the third bucket is elite play, which is the one that's still the biggest unknown to be determined. Like, and I think what Blake said is right sizing this versus the other buckets is kind of the thrust of this entire discussion, right? It's like, what does minimizing pro and elite level play look like? And then what, how does that allow us to maximize other areas? And this was the shortest part of their discussion and the shortest part of our discussion, I think, because our listeners and us, we're not elite players. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is not the casual spike environment. This is the spike environment and the high level spike environment. And if that's your thing, then yeah, you might be concerned, but I think the vast majority of magic players have even played a sanctioned event in their lives. Right. And so like splitting the difference, I think is smart. However, this is where we get to the, um, question about, so we may not be the elite level players, but we are the elite level consumers of content probably right? Like the people who, the people who are casual spikes are probably the people who pay the most attention to organized play, pay the most attention to elite level play. We might not get into the eccentricities of the different formats, like the payout formats and all those kind of things, but we're the people who want to watch those Twitch streams whenever they, they come around. And I think that part of what they need to do here is create a product or potentially go back to a setup that is more fun to consume on television, depending on how, how that works out for them. So I'm sure that that's what they're thinking about. I mean, it is sad because I, I thought that when the MPL started that it had a lot of potential as far as what they could do with it, but it was just never, you just never heard about it. Never really heard about it until a day or two before it was on, never understood why they were playing the formats they were playing. You know, the coverage was on at strange times. Like it was just it didn't feel like it was set up to be consumed as well as it could have. And that maybe the kind of long weekend tournament style really is the best way to consume magic. Well, it seems to depend on who's producing that long weekend tournament because when SCG does it, it's pretty nice. Well, but, but even the pro tours are, were better than the, the way that the MPL worked out ultimately, I think. And I don't know, I like the production level of those things was all fine. I don't have any problems with that. It was more just the choices they made about how they packaged it when it was on, how frequently it was on. It didn't seem to be on any kind of like regular schedule. And I think it wasn't as aspirational. And I think other podcasts have talked about this that I've listened to this past week. And it's just kind of this concept I agree with, which is just like you knew or many people knew, many people who listen to this podcast knew that they could go to a PPTQ or the, one of the final sort of PTQs that were lingering around. If you did well, you did the next thing. If you did well there, you're at a PT. Maybe you maybe you top eight at a GP or something like that. You got lucky. You spiked it. You prepared awesomely. Like that idea of how to get to a pro tour was challenging, but sensical. Right. Like to like that was aspirational. You could be like, I'm I could play in round one against Reed Duke and lose. But playing on arena in the in the you know, whatever the quarterly tournament was called in the MPL was much less feasible and much less conceptually relevant to us. 
And I think to the vast majority of people listening to this podcast. And so I think that that is kind of what's, what was good about these paper tournaments that we watched was like, it was something that we could envision ourselves doing and participating in. And it wasn't the case with the MPL. And I think the wizards realizes that, but they also realize that like they can also just encourage even more fun, more like festival atmosphere, more local atmosphere. And that's kind of what I think we've been talking about this whole time. Right. And that's even what they talked about explicitly, like in this festival bucket, which I think is something that they're really realizing that people want to enjoy magic. This is so, so cliche, but magic is the gathering, right? Like we've been to, I think we, I went to GP Phoenix, right? The last, like one of the last GPs, if not the last before COVID hit. And like, there's huge amount of like command fest type presence. There's huge amount of like EDH presence. And it's like an atmosphere where like the main event is almost a side event. Do you think those are different things? Are you so far removed from commander and EDH that you think those are two separate things, Shane? Oh, well, I, mean, I think I was just using both <laughs> terms. I'm doing, I'm doing big umbrella, big tent I know, here. I know. But you're probably right. Um, Shane I think, thinks commander and EDH are separate things. I'm making a sticker. Yeah, get at me. Uh, you've, we've seen the growth of like a quote unquote casual player, but I think EDH players are probably more serious than I am about a lot of the formats I play. Uh, and Watsy recognizing that these are the consistently engaged players they have and recognizing engagement in different ways than competitive play, I think is hugely important because it speaks to a, I think an improved mindset on supporting their player base beyond the, the small percent of people who are watching MPL and are striving to make it to the elite levels of play. Yeah. I mean, my take here is that I think that I don't think that the aspirational part of viewing a pro tour was as as intertwined as has been made by some people, maybe including you just now. I don't I don't think it matters. Like for me, it's got to be entertaining. I want to see formats that I care about. Occasionally, I care about seeing the pros that I care about in the sense of like who's on a good run right now or who do I know brought, you know, is really innovating on a deck that I care about, like Ross, when he was really running with, is it Phoenix where I was like, this is cool. This is a deck I vibed with early. And then this pro picked it up and is doing really well with it. And it's kind of built this reputation around playing it or part of his reputation around playing it. Like that's what I want out of coverage. It, it doesn't square with the me wanting to go to a PTQ every once in a while and, and have dreams about maybe top eighting, you know, like that's a, that's a different part of it. And so sure. I watch the coverage to try to get better, but I also watch the coverage because I want to see new cards. I want to see what's happening. I want to see what the pros think about the format so that I can do well on moto or, or wherever as well. And so I don't think that those two pieces are as inexorably linked as some people have tried to say. I don't say that as a way of saying that they should not have high level queued play, let's say like non open play of some kind. I, I do think that they should have that. And I think they will figure out a way to bring some form of that back. I just hope it's, entertaining to watch for sure i don't think they're coming back not at all i don't think gps or pro tours are coming back you don't think gps are coming back maybe online they'll have online culminating events but i think 2020 being a record-setting revenue year proved to them that they don't need to host events to make money but they they already don't host the events you know what i mean they they have companies that do it yeah people pay them to do it for the privilege of it because then they make money to do so Something else to keep in mind is that GPs did not come from wizards in the first place. Not real, not realistically, you know, they were a ground up 
thing that started with people back in the 90s deciding that, well, let's have an event. Well, let's have an event and let's have a bigger event and let's have, have an even bigger event. And then Wizards started getting involved with giving support and helping people organize them and things like that. I think the I think as far as open play goes, Stan, so, I have a lot of faith that someday that'll come back. Whether Wizards wants to or not, Star City Games might come back, you know, and decide that it's time yeah. and safe to do yeah. it. Yeah, maybe Star City and NRG will do things, but I don't necessarily think we have a good reason to take Wizards at face value when they say they're going to bring back Magic Fests because they've been dismantling them. I don't think they've been dismantling Magic Fests. But they have because they've repeatedly denied event organizers of Magic Fest from streaming and broadcasting those events. That mm. was a thing that happened. Yeah, in that, 2019. That that's is an a, investment thing, though. That's a right. Yeah, that is a rights thing that they kind of took had a bad take on. I agree that they should not. I don't think that they should restrict people from broadcasting those either, for sure. But I also think I think that's an investment thing, which is like if 15,000 people watch at best, if 8,000 people watch, then the investment for the broadcast is not worth it. But if the organizers are making enough money by charging entry fees, by charging vendor fees, by having people in in there in, involved in it, and I think that. That has proven to be a successful model. Whether or not it's a broadcast model, I think they. I think the focus is the gathering aspect. And if when you see a command zone packed with EDH players, that's a success because that's that's generating money for vendors, generating money for the event holders, all that kind of stuff. For me, this this whole thing gave me no thoughts at all about Magic Fests, honestly. Stan, like the whole thing for me was just what's going to replace the Mythic Championship versus Pro Tour versus MPL, like that whole stew of things that they haven't been able to figure out for a long time. Uh, you know, is there going to be a gravy train? Is there not going to be a gravy train? Appearance fees, the Hall of Fame, like all these things that don't really, that we're never going to get to touch, but they're things that help us consume the content. That's what this all felt like it was about to me. It didn't even occur to me that this would be, oh, we're not going to have GPs. I mean, and the only reason I'm thinking about that is because I'm thinking from the casual spike perspective, where how do we as, you know, aspirational middling players participate in higher level events? And that's why I am taking a more cynical point of view until proven otherwise. That said, I have a lot of optimism for Nerd Rage and Star City because I think they have demonstrated a willingness and a desire to grow. Yeah, and in 2022, when we have dive down Grand Prix number one in uh, Indianapolis yeah. at the same convention center that everything's at in Indianapolis, <laughs> uh, look us up. I like that. Uh, it's a bold call, Dave. Let's plow through the rest of this. Okay, last tier is digital. I think digital is actually it's easy for us to take for granted that digital exists and that there is some kind of competitive play. And Watsi appreciates this as like the on-ramp for anyone in the world, more or less, right? And I think our non-US listeners probably have felt that annoyance of having like fewer options for large events in their countries even before COVID. Digital creates some kind of leveling of opportunity. Yeah. And I'll just give you another like example of this kind of not US versus non-US thing that we've heard that people maybe haven't thought about. We've had people uh, in different subreddits tell us that they really appreciate us covering covering historic as part of it because historic is ostensibly free to play and that people in other countries that non-us countries have such a hard time getting a hold of cards for a valuable or for a reasonable amount of money that those people really want to play arena instead because they can grind and get the cards that they want and com compete and feel like they're getting where they want to go which was really a surprise to me because in my mind Historic feels like more, it's more expensive, but I also don't have the time to grind. And so that was a really interesting point. And so I feel like that kind of ladders into what Shane is talking about here, where 
digital is something that provides on onload for or on road for lots of different people to play competitively. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons that people might prefer digital versus paper, right? Like maybe they have social anxieties. Like you said, maybe there's limited budgets, there's limited schedules, there's accessibility issues, whatever. And digital equalizes that in many ways. And Arena is also a financial success for Watsi, and they want to continue pushing that for that competitive play environment. And I'm excited to see, like we talked about earlier, is like what that brings to the table for us and our listeners. Like what is, what is the casual spike environment? What does, what does it, what does a league look like? What does an FNM look like? What does a small tournament look like? And I'm hoping that that's something that we see the, the realization of, but this is Watsi and digital, which means I like, this is where I will join Stan in my pessimism and say, I'll believe it when I see it in terms of more robust options besides like melee, which is pretty much homegrown. Homegrown meaning not at Wizards. Someone stepped up and created that platform. Exactly. You know, Brad Nelson and a number of other people. I want to talk about just a few topics with you all and kind of it's a little bit separate from what Blake talked about. And I think we kind of brushed on this, which is like, what is what is the way you two equate Watsi's handling of pro play or even competitive play with the overall success of the game? Like how in how coupled are those two things? like high level play and the success of the game to the biggest audience. Let me take a stab at my, my thinking on this organized play of magic. The gathering is inevitable. I believe. Okay. Like if we take that as a first principle of this discussion, it is inevitable that people want to get together and test their skills against each other. It's gone on this way forever before wizards was involved since wizards is involved and in, in everything in between different levels of involvement. I think that the success of the game is not totally dependent on them supporting organized play in some ways, like I, with prizes, with monetary support. I think that they should support the infrastructure of organized play through things like the event reporter um, helping put together a system of how tournaments should work and those kind of things. I think they should do that stuff. So that's where I think the line kind of gets drawn. The question for them becomes... If organized play is inevitable and if high level organized play is also somewhat inevitable because uh, people will, there will be people that are better than others. Someone will make some kind of tournament series that uh, proves that one person is the quote unquote world champion or something. Shouldn't wizards be the people that are part of sponsoring that as well? And I think what they are trying to figure out right now is to what degree do they have to foster that environment with money in order to have it be something that they feel proud to be a part of. Um, and can be feasibly be a part of. So it's weird because I don't think that it's necessarily coupled to the game's success, but I do think that because the game is successful, it will exist. And so they have to find some way to nominally support it in some way. Yeah. I think that's kind of the idea, right? Is like, what does that support look like? We talked about this for longer than I expected. Thank you for indulging this topic. If you've stuck with us, I hope that we, I mean, I'm excited about the, the future, if it, if this rebalance kind of improves the, the local game store environment, the local environment, the, you know, the smaller event environment for all of us, casual spikes out there. So keep your eyes peeled. If we hear anything, we'll talk about it. Uh, so yeah, let's, uh, want to get on out of here, head on into the, the dive down. We're going to talk about his, historic anthology five and, uh, yeah, stay with us.
And we're back. So with basically an entire week to spare until their official arena release. What a tease. I want to play all these cards. Every one of them. All 25. 25 new cards have been announced for Magic Arena via Historic Anthology 5. Is this more than there have been in the past? I don't remember. I don't, I don't, I didn't feel like the last one was 25 cards. Anybody remember? Well, I just pulled up Historic Anthology 4. It was 25 cards. Oh. 3 was 27 cards. 2 okay. was 25 cards. 1 was 20 cards. So if you're remembering Historic Anthology 1, you're correct. I'm not at all. I wasn't even playing Arena then. Hard so, to believe. Hard to believe. So what we're going to try to do today is talk about as many of those cards as possible. Some of them in a little bit more words, others in fewer words. And I suggest we start with the premier flagship creature package from Anthology 5, and that is the Praetor Cycle. Stan, were these the modern powerhouses you were hoping for? One of them was. (laughs) Ish. Well, let's come back to that question because astute listeners may recall either last week or the week prior, we were imagining what might be an historic anthology five. And and, I even remember that too. Yeah. And Shane barely listens (laughs) and we can kind of evaluate that initial, those initial predictions against what we actually got because we now have the full list. And among that list is the five Praetors first published in new Phyrexia. What? was that 15 years ago? Everything feels like 15 years ago, I think. Not 15 years ago. So they, so new Phyrexia was, no, no, this would be 2010, I believe was new Phyrexia. So I guess 11 years ago, which is terrifying to me. So Stan was like seven. Oh my gosh. All right. So the Praetors are a cycle of, so we came out exactly 10 years ago, May 13th, 2011. Wow. It's hard to believe that I've been playing magic for 13 years the second time through. But anyway, so these were kind of flagship mythics in the new Phyrexia set. So what we've done today, in addition to talking about the individual cards, is we try to look at some old and existing decks that run these cards so that we can either have a little bit of a springboard as we discuss what their application might be in historic, maybe contextualize it on their role in history and decide from there whether or not these might be playable out the gate or whether people are going to have to come up with some new applications for them. So Dave, you were talking about the Praetors. Tell me more. Do you want me to get into the, like the, um, the story stuff? They were the head of like the warring factions of the Phyrexians that took over. Oh, this is what I want. Vorthos cast Mirrodin basically. So there was sort of like some inner intersect like battles, I believe between the different, groups that were taking over Mirrodin and turning it into new Phyrexia. And these cards are big and expensive and weird. And each one is a single color. They're all massively expensive with the exception of one. They're all pointy. They're all pointy. They have edges. They complete things. They don't really complete me though. Cause these are definitely not the types of cards that I am looking for generally in a new set. I will say a number of these are like they get, they do see some play in, in EDH here and there, like I believe that Shieldra does. Um, I'm not sure about these other ones necessarily. Jingataxius do. does, I'm sure, because that's the one that like makes you makes your opponents not have a hand. Um, all of these cards essentially need to be cheated into play to see play and constructed, I think. And we do have a pretty good cheating card in historic right now in Unburial Rights. Oh, okay. Can we read some of these cards? <laughs> do you want to? Sure. Let's breathe. Okay, hold on. 
Vorinclex, giant green thing, 7-6 trample, makes like double mana. And it winter orbs your opponents. So they, they each have a positive effect to you and a negative effect for your opponent. Okay. Like so, Jingataxius yeah. is what? Eight blue, blue, a, a, a 10 mana value, five, four with flash. And then at the beginning of your end step, draw seven cards, AKA win the game. Each opponent's maximum hand size is reduced by seven, which means it's zero unless they have some other effect on board. Right. It basically means they have to discard their hand at the end of every turn. Yeah. Assuming they don't concede on the spot. Right. So we've got the red one, which is Urabrask, <laughs> the hidden. That one's five mana for a four, four. That's almost playable. Creatures you control have haste. Creatures your opponents control enter the battlefield tapped. And of course, there's Elish Norn, the grand Cenobite. Five white, white for a four, seven vigilance. Creatures yeah. you control get plus two, plus two. Creatures your opponents control get minus two, minus two. I think two. Pinhead would like to have a word with Elish Norn about who the grandest Cenobite is, but we can... We can come back to that some other time. I mean, don't you forgot Shieldred whispering one five black black for a six six with Swamp Walk. And you basically get to return a creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield during your upkeep. And then your opponent's upkeep, they have to sacrifice a creature. So they all do cool stuff. They all cost a good amount. And like Dave said, and I think is the important thing is you pretty much want to cheat these things. So here's where I'm going to start throwing out caveats all willy nilly. In looking at these cards' history, in standard, modern, extended, what have you, a lot of them saw play in decks where they either were cheated out, yes, or were ramp targets. So in addition to Unburial Rights, which Dave mentioned, the other way that these cards were sometimes cheated into play was with Birthing Pod. Mm-hmm. And although we don't have Birthing Pod specifically in historic or modern, for that matter, we do have Prime Speaker Vanifar. <laughs> I mean, sure. Okay. <laughs> How about them apples? You like apples, Dave? I mean, it's tough because you got to chain up to these things, right? And so mm-hmm. you're going to chain up to 10. What's your nine? I don't know. Some other card. I guess my point is, from what I could tell, Vorinclex Voice of Hunger was basically the only one that didn't see some level of constructed play in either standard when pod was legal along with these cards or modern when it was either pod or um, faithless looting plus unburial rights. So aspirationally in decks that we don't really have the ability to recreate, I think in, in historic, like what are you thinking about? What does that make you think about in terms of the, the shells and concepts that you were looking at Stan? So I looked up every historic card that can basically unearth a creature to the battlefield. And there's one that costs three CMC called Ascent of the Worthy. It's a one white black enchantment saga from Kaldheim. The third chapter reads return target creature from your graveyard to the battlefield with a flying counter on it. Mm. That creature is an angel warrior in addition to its other types. My angel warrior Praetor. Jingitaxius. My angel warrior tribal deck will love it. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the card that I'm still looking at here is Unburial Rights. And you might remember that um, there is a deck that pops up occasionally in modern that's Elish Norn plus Gifts Ungiven plus Unburial Rights plus Iona plus some other kind of cards like that where you put together a really difficult package from a gifts ungiven for your opponents to choose from because you either end up with imperial rice in your hand or in your graveyard. 
and then you bring back whatever whatever they put in your graveyard for you to be able to really hit their team hard. And I could see potentially some kind of shell coming up around that, especially aided by faithless looting. Now, maybe you're playing some kind of cantrippy, faithless self-mill kind of deck instead of playing um, something that actually lets you get the cards, like Gifts Ungiven. I thought for a hot minute that Gifts Ungiven was maybe going to be in this set, and I was kind of like really thankful that it wasn't, just because that does so many other things to the format as well. But um, I think that there could be something there with Elish Norn, which is the one that that really hits your opponent's creatures really hard. And we'll kind of see where it goes from there. But that's the one that I think has the most potential to me, especially with our powerful Faithless Looting being around. Can I share a couple other tools to cheat these creatures into play? Sure. You may have heard of this one, Elspeth Conquers Death. Mm -hmm. So maybe you play a control strategy that is maybe running Prismari Command to put cards into your graveyard. Or along with looting, faithless for that matter. yeah. No. And then you use Elspeth Conquers Death to exile target permanence, tax down creature spells. And then it gets to chapter three and you get to cheat in a big creature from your yard for five mana. That's one. How about Luca Coppercoat Outcast? Mm-hmm. With like Transmogrify style. Yeah. 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 Luca Cool Coat Gentleman. How about Emergent Ultimatum? Uh huh. I mean, if you cast that, don't you win? Don't you win the game casting most ultimatums just by on the lonesome? Yeah, not most. Now you can do that with Praetors. Yeah, but that one maybe maybe these Praetors end up in those packages for some reason, some specific reason that you want in that case. Same thing with Luca. Like we're we are transmogrifying into certain targets because they're really appropriate for the metagame for some reason. But there might be another reason that develops in the metagame where Jenga Taxius is really good, and so you want to have your deck set up to get that instead. I'm not sure why that would be better than Ulamog. But, you know, perhaps this is where all these conversations were ending up with me going, which is just like, which one of these cards is better than Ulamog? Like, if we're talking about cheating, like, which of these cards do you want to have access to more than other things we already have access to? Like, at what power level or what utility do you think it's better than Ulamog on general strength? I think Looter? Oh no, we're still on the Praetors. <laughs> still on Praetors. I think Elish Norn is the one that has a different thing because it can wrath your opponent's entire board. Yeah, and like people still can have you down low enough, or like Ulamog's not stabilizing enough. Like maybe they have a wide board. Maybe you're already you know you're at two life. You know, there's all sorts of options where an Ulamog on turn five or something like that might be not be enough if your entire deck is warped around cheating an Ulamog back into play. Yep. Well, Stan, I mean, I don't want to dismiss what you're saying, which is like you you have a lot of notable cards about like reanimating these things or getting these things transmogrified in some way. Are you excited about them or are you just trying to just be as creative as possible with what we have access to? Yes. I want to give people hope because we're not the ones that are going to construct tier new tier one decks, but these cards are coming out for a reason. And hopefully that reason is more than just providing fun, splashy new mythics for arena cube. And if we're going to spend our hard-earned gold or hard-paid gems for them, I think it would be nice if there was something exciting new in the format that we can do with some of these crazy mythics that I venture to bet none of us have ever played with and maybe a lot of arena players have never played with. So, you know what? I'm not saying they will be good. I'm not even saying that I necessarily want them to be good. I'm just willing to dream. Dare to dream, guys. 
There is another cycle that has been added to Historic Anthology 5, and that is the Dragons of Tarkir command cycle. Okay. Now, these, these are some good ones. That's right. These are gold, allied colored, five of them. They each do two things. You get to choose two out of a list of four. Just like you do with commands. <laughs> Other than word of command. Word of command doesn't do four different things, weirdly. All right. Let's go through these one by one as well. Starting with Silumgar's command. Best first. I like it. Smart. We're starting with a hot one. I'm going to read Silumgar's command real quick for you all. Silumgar's command is three generic, a blue, a black. Choose two. Counter target non-creature spell. Return target permanent to its owner's hand. Target creature gets minus three, minus three until end of turn. Destroy target planeswalker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure is expensive. Yeah. Used to see a bit of standard play. And control decks, Esper, Grixis control list, I think an Esper Dragons basically is a one of when this was in standard. And that's it. Yeah, unfortunately, very expensive. Kind of narrow, like tacking destroy a planeswalker on there is okay, but not great. Having it be just a negate and not a full counter spell is also kind of a bummer. Like, I think that a lot of these, when you look at them, you want them to be as powerful ish as cryptic command. Like, every time people read it, they're like, I want it to be this. This is just not that, even though it costs more. I mean, it's nice that it can kill a kill a creature and bounce a creature. Like that's a that's a cool thing. But yes, this card never saw broad play and definitely never saw play in Pioneer or Modern either. Yeah, this is this is like an era where Hero's Dawnfall was like a fifteen dollar removal spell, and it's it's six years after that. You know, when since Silumgar's command has been printed. So, all right, let's talk about the next one. Ojutai's command. This is fun. I have the buy box promos of these cards. Two white, blue. Choose two. Return target creature with CMC two or less from your graveyard to the battlefield, or you gain four life, or counter target creature spell, or draw a card. Yeah. <laughs> so this one actually was a little more interesting. I think saw just a shade more play than Ojitai's than I uh, than Silumgar's command. The thing that was really interesting about these commands is that, and this is just like some history is that Silumgar and Ojitai, I think, were the most played of the of the Elder Dragons from this cycle Yeah, in a lot of ways. And they, yeah, Ojitai uh, was like a $20, $25 card in standard. Yeah, and it was, it was interesting that their commands were nowhere near as good as their actual cards were. Yeah, Ojitai's command, not really a staple in top-tier decks, but an occasional random one or two of in some controller mid-range strategies. I will note it's been in a main deck, modern top eight as recently as 2019 in the post modern horizons version of scape shift. Oh, interesting. Why would well, you have a sense of what it was, what it was grabbing? I think it was targeting creature spells, drawing <laughs> cards, gaining for life. I don't think you use the, the mode to bring a creature back unless it's like one of those creatures that cheats in land or fetches land, Sakura tribe scout or whatever elder yeah i used to see it sometimes with Soulfire grandmaster in standard where you would like play your Soulfire grandmaster it would die and then you would bring your Soulfire grandmaster back later to be able to do some stuff there was some things going on with that like jeskai black deck that was floating around where i think that you played this occasionally but um never as good as i hoped it was shane read the third best one for us <laughs> is this the third best i do you're probably right uh dromoka's command dromoka's command is a card i've Cast a surprising number of times. Mm-hmm. It's a Selesnia mana, just green and white. Instant speed, choose two. Prevent all damage. Target instant or sorcery speed would deal this turn. Target player sacrifices an enchantment. 
Put a 1-1 counter on target creature and target creature you control fights target creature you don't control. So you can't make a different creature fight yours. It's rude. Um, it's effectively the same thing. So this card's pretty cool. I think it's 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 been a staple in various what like old standard company style decks like Bant Company, things like that. Yeah, it was in those company decks. I think it was in straight up Obzon in the sideboards for creature matchups, right? For that in the, the mid-rangey deck. I believe that it was in the weird kind of Selesnia slash Obzon heroic deck that existed for a little bit that used the Falconer uh, to give everybody flying that had a counter on it. There were, this card was definitely around in standard at the time. It's popped up in Pioneer and Modern. Mm-hmm. Pioneer, it's all a little bit of playing Hardened Scales. In Modern, it's shown up in Bogles, Spirits, Zoo decks, and Heroic and Company decks. As yeah, I mean, I think this is a good card if you are a creature deck that wants to try to have something that's good value against other creature decks. Like, that's what this is. And it's cheap interaction. So, what is this card typically doing you guys have cast it it's seen the most play of the ones we've talked about it reads to me like it's primarily a removal spell that sometimes can tag an enchantment it gives a color combination without a lot of interaction some interaction right like if you're playing a creature based deck you're not running uh you know you're running fight spells and this is a fight spell with some upside you can get them to sacrifice an enchantment if they have it on the other side like this is from an era when uh, what the search for Ascanta is like a thing around this era. Yeah, search for Ascanta is, is Origins, right? No, no, dude, that was an Ixalan. Kaladesh or Ixalan, yeah. Okay, yeah. well, you get you get what I'm saying is that there are enchantments that exist that you might want your opponent to sacrifice, right? Yeah, like Heliod. Think, but also, I think importantly, you have the ability to dodge red sweepers and dodge red burn spells. So, like. Those things do exist. Anger of the Gods was a popular spell around these times. Now you're talking. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we see all kinds of spells. Red sweepers exist when there's a red base control deck frequently, if it's not splashing into white. And so being able to protect from those, uh, even Magma Opus, something like that, it protects against the the damage that would go to some important creatures or things like that. Uh, this is just it's interaction. It's not, a, but it's not a game breaker at this point. Like, is this better than Primal Might or whatever that rare fight spell that exists right now, where you can sort of use it late game to pump and fight and sort of win? I think this is flex. I mean, this is like a classic command, which is just like there's a balance in the utility and the power. Um, I'm not sure that this is something that we're going to see a ton of, but I think that it will be in enough decks that it'll have some usage. But I don't think this is necessarily even an automatic slot in in green white company decks at this point in historic. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it feels to me like it would fit really well on those kind of pork and taxes decks, what those have become with the green white green white company kind of thing. Obviously, this is a much harder sell in something like, you know. Selesnia angels because this just you don't really need this kind of thing in that because you're you're like comboing off in that deck more so than you are trying to like grind someone by fighting their creatures but um it feels to me like it's a nice piece to have around in historic honestly and occasionally like you said you there's annoying enchantments that you'll be happy to get rid of such as even making your opponent get rid of baffling end after they got rid of one of your early creatures. So you get a three, three back out of it. Like that's fine. Yeah, it's actually, that's, I mean, that's, that's very important. You're right. Like uh, a lot of the removal is enchantment based and historic and some of the control decks. So 
So I just think there's a lot of possibilities for this one. And it was a decent card before. And I think it could be a decent card here, especially given that there is a fair portion of the time that Historic's metagame is kind of creature-ish based. We might not be there right now. But and it costs two. Yeah, and it costs two. Instant. Yeah, the mana value is so low. Like, just think about the, the commands that came out in Strixhaven versus this card. And this is the third best out of the Dragons of Tarkir cycle, I, I really think. And um, yeah. this seems like it would be better than any of the ones that came out of Strixhaven. Can I talk about the next one? The one I'm most excited about? Please, we know you're excited about this one. All you've been talking about for the last week is this card. Well, that's a mild exaggeration. But Can I tell you that, that one of my earliest memories of like you playing Magic is just you <laughs> mercilessly <laughs> destroying me with Monastery Swift Spear and a Tarkus Command. Really? And me, me learning quickly like, oh. <laughs> Sometimes skull pump crack. spells can be good. Yeah, skull crack can be good. <laughs> All right, it's a Tarkus Command, red and a green. Instant, choose two. Opponents can't gain life this turn. A target's command deals three damage to each opponent. You may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. Creatures you control get plus one, plus one, and gain reach until end of turn. The reach is very important. Uh, this is the card I'm most interested in. Uh, but after brewing up some decks with it in Historic, I'm also fine with it not being as good as I think. But I think that there's a lot of excitement around this because it's in aggressive colors. It's a classically good aggressive card we've seen it in aggro decks from standard to modern uh zoo based decks burn based decks swarm based decks uh it's been in modern burn for a while like burn if you are used to boros burn for a while it was naya burn primarily for cards like Atarka's Command and like Destructive Revelry, which is another card from this era that had a lot of utility because it destroyed something and dealt damage. Yeah, and this was even post like those kind of decks thinking about running Wild Nacatl. It was just for green spells. Exactly. And um, what this card does in Historic, I think, is really going to be based on two questions and the answers to those questions. Like, does it make any existing deck better or does it make any deck built around it faster and more consistent than the aggressive decks we already have in the format. So I think like when you look at the first question, like, does it make anything better? You have to look at Gruel aggro first, or at least I, that's where I'm kind of leaning towards because that's one of the most enduring, most consistent decks in the meta and a potential home for this card. Like people are going to be like, well, does Gruel want this in the main? Does it want it in the side? What is a Tarka's command doing for the deck? I'm not sure that this could be run main deck over any of your creatures, over Ember Cleaves, because this deck is all about creature density. Like Ember Cleave relies on creatures. Your deck relies on beating down with creatures. You want that burst damage with Ember Cleave, I think a lot more than you want the burst damage with maybe like three or four creatures of the absolute most swinging in with the Targa's command. And the Lava Spike, basically. Yeah, and the Lava Spike is important too, right? And it also would stop like a life gain type thing, which is why I think like it's more of a potential in the sideboard because Gruul is often running something like Roiling Vortex in the side, but that also has like this weird advantage of like this consistent damage, like turn over turn Roiling Vortex does, but a Tarkus Command is a one and done. I mean, it's maybe like a Mirror Breaker against an another Gruul deck because your creatures are all going to be slightly bigger. Uh, especially if and if they have trample that's getting some damage through uh, that kind of thing could be pretty valuable. I just don't know if this has a real home in Gruul. After thinking about it and thinking about the way I've played deck uh, Gruul decks and built Gruul decks, but again, this is one of those things where it's like, hey, I'm bolting. I'm, I'm not putting a 
uh, Lava Spike in my deck. I'm not putting a, a, a Lightning Strike in my deck. I'm putting a Lightning Strike that also deals my opponents more damage from my creatures. That also stops maybe a uh, what like a, a life gained up pants creature sure. where you're just yeah. like, hey, like you're no, you're not gaining eleven this turn. Yeah, uh, and I'm gonna kill you because I'm going wider right. than your big suited up creature. Yeah, you think you got me, and now you're not because I'm gonna come. Yeah, yeah, and that's all. Like those, those are that's valuable valuable enough utility where maybe it's one of those things where it's like two of in the sideboard just because it's so flexible. Yeah, what's crazy to me is that this sort of competes with cards like Coco and Embercleave, but it also feels like it would want to be in a similar deck as those cards. And I think it's kind of a question of which of those is going to help you win games the soonest because Coco is a two for one. And this kind of isn't unless you actually put a land down and like use it defensively or your opponents block into it. Yeah, I mean, very much depend. This is one of those like philosophy of fire ish things where if doing three damage to your opponent for a card is worth a card in your deck, then this is a two for one. If right. it's not worth a card in your deck, it's a little bit harder to make the case for it because that's the default mode when you're in a situation when this card is not amazing is I'm going to lava spike you and do something, you know, so that really depends. Yeah. And, and kind of sticking with your theme here, Stan, is like, what has this card been good in in the past? And I think we still do not have a legitimate burn deck in historic. Like, I don't think this makes a Naya burn deck. Uh, in historic, we still just don't have fetches and we don't have uh, the mana base that really supports a Naya burn deck, I think, successfully, or the density of burn cards. And so the way that I think this deck has succeeded in standard has really kind of been like zoo based. And the the real way these decks were built was a lot of creatures, some a lot of token makers, like sort of goblin-based rush decks, where well, not even rush decks, where it's just sort of been like I'm going to play out spells that make more than one creature. They're going to be redundant creatures. It might be my one mana two one with a downside back when that was still a thing for red, when your creatures hurt you or something like that. Right. And instead of just being good and then being able to be wide enough that you could just alpha strike at some point with a, uh, with a Tarkus command, with your tokens being pumped up with the damage from the burn spell and all that kind of good stuff and just finishing your opponent off with the early chip and then the final alpha strike. And I think that is a more reasonable way to think about using this card in historic and decks that I've been brewing up have been, what are my cheap creatures? What are my one manas with haste? You know, one, one mana creatures with haste. My, I get burning tree emissary for some uh, extra spells. I can maybe use something like goblin instigator or even like forbidden friendship to like make just two mana, two mana to make two one ones and then build a wide board and try to alpha strike with the Tarkus command. Maybe even it's like a version of cavalcade deck where it's like, I have all one power creatures with all these tokens. I have four cavalcade. I have four Tarkus command splashing green and get that cavalcade trigger. Then, then cast a Tarkus command and go off. Or there's other variants too, where it's like, maybe I don't want all one powers. Uh, maybe I want some, Things like uh, what that uh, Wayward Guide Beast, like our new one mana two two with haste, uh, and maybe things like uh, what Infuriate, like that was always a classic part of the standard ones, like the Teamer Battle Rage plus uh, Become Immense. 
So let's get my my best red pump spell, like my my Titan's Rage. What was it? Titan's Strength, that spell that people played back in Theros. The plus three, plus one, scry one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Infuriates are our Titan's Strength variant here. So it's just like whatever is not blocked, I'm pumping up with my dirt cheap pump spells and things like that. I think there's a lot of options for using a Tarka and Tarka's command in that style of deck. But the real question I still have is, is that going to be better than what we have? And I think it kind of gets to like metagame considerations. Like Stan, you know, this elves already goes wide, right? They do. And that's, and that's sometimes the benefit of elves is that you're wider than what's blocking you. And you just have a density of threats that are all like three threes or something like that and gets the job done. But I think a weakness of elves is that some of your creatures matter more than others. And if all of your creatures are like crappy one ones, then nothing, nothing matters more than the other. So your opponent's removal spell on your Lord or removal spell on like your, uh, elf creator, uh, is no longer as, as, as backbreaking because you're just like, well, I paid one card to make two one ones. And the only way you kill them is with a wrath or something like that. But I don't know. I think I've talked enough about Atarka. I'm just kind of, I'm amped about it. I'm not sure it's going to be the best new aggro deck, but I think that there are opportunities here for use. And that's, what's exciting about it. Do we need to define what an alpha strike is? I had to look it up. It's not a card. You talk about it. Like, is this old card? It's an old term. Yeah. And I just had to see opponent off, right? It's basically swing for lethal. Yeah, swing for lethal. Alpha strike. Alpha strike also means you don't care what dies. Right. Like, I'm going to lose three of my tokens, but four are going to get through, and so I'm going to win. Yeah, so I mean, like I said, yeah, sorry for that, Stan. Well, what's funny is we didn't even define what historic anthology is. We just kind of assumed <laughs> that people knew it's what historic anthologies were. It's just, no, it's, to, so, yeah, basically, it's a direct injection of 25 cards. Enjoy. I had to fight you to let me even read the cards. Well, just the Praetors. I was like, we can go through the Praetors. We let's spend the time on these commands because these are good. And this last one, ooh, ooh yeah, wee. that's a spicy meatball. Do y'all know that this card, when it came out in Dragons of Tarkir, pre-ordered for one dollar because people did not think this card was that good, and it immediately went up to twenty dollars. Dave, I think this was an early version of a card for me, especially where it's like you learn the value of a card like this sort of over time. Like, I think this is sort of like an early exposure to a lot of people, like about what a modal spell even was and what the value you can get on getting a card back out of the graveyard and just all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the card we're talking about, of course, is Coligan's command, which is a generic, a black and a red for an instance that says choose two, uh, and the modes are raise dead. Um, Target player discards a card at instant speed, which I don't know what that is. Shatter and shock are the cards that are on here. It's destroy target artifact, deal two damage to any target. Um, Stan, aren't you, don't you always love when when Dave starts doing his stuff like that's a th- that's a that's a shock effect. That's a that's a that's a <laughs> it is what it is. effect. Well, I know it's just funny when you do it. See, I thought that, that was just a stomp. Yeah, stomp. <laughs> it's a stomp effect. It's uh, a wild slash effect. Hmm, hmm. <laughs> Come back to stronghold with me. Guys, yeah. yes. So <laughs> this card. Yeah. Out of the yeah. cards we've mentioned so far, I think this is probably the biggest get. For, for sure. Format. I think out of the 10 cards we talked about so far, this is the one that's the, the biggest. So here's what I'll tell you about the environment of historic. Red Black Arcanist is a very popular, longstanding and successful deck. And Colligan's Command gets us ever closer to basically playing a mere 
version of the Pioneer Red Black Arcanist deck, but with more tech. I mean, we're, we're trading That's off things point. like Dreadbore for IOK, yeah. but now we have Coggins Command. Um, we right. also like have, that's, a, that's been a good deck in Pioneer, and now we have like the one card that was missing. Exactly. That's the one card that was missing, and this deck in Historic has Faithless Looting as well. So like, please, please don't forget that you also get to, to have one of the best cantrip effects available to be able to grind where you want to go as well now. So I, I in some ways, I think that the list in Historic is just better than the Pioneer list now that, now that you have Coligan's Command and Faithless Looting. Whether or not this is enough to make that deck a powerhouse, I think is really the question. But yeah, we'll that's about the meta more than anything else. The straight power level of the cards is pretty impressive right now. And I also think that, you know, the thing that's most important, Shane was talking earlier about like, let's talk about how much value there is in a card like this. This is a card that just has so much utility to do so many different things. And it's good in so many different matchups that don't kind of overlap with each other. So quite often your deck can bring a creature back for good, good value. And that's great. Getting your opponent to discard a card at the right time is often very good and very important randomly being able to run artifact hate main deck without having to devote a whole card slot for it. It's just incredible against artifact centric decks and then doing two damage to something. Sometimes you kill somebody, sometimes you kill their creature. Sometimes you finish off a planeswalker. It's just a really, really good card that fits in so many different shells. And that's the thing is that, you know, it can fit in an Arcanist style shell. You know, it gets, it sees play in Jund, just like straight up mid range boomer Jund, let's call it. I used to play this card in Grixis with Snapcaster yeah. Mage to do I mean, like I weird loops with Muldrifter and stuff. That's, I think, one of the big reasons we don't see it in modern as much as we used to is because of the decline of Grixis Deshetta, where it was a very big house of a card. I mean, Dave, you didn't even you mentioned it, but think about how important instant speed discard is. Where yeah. it's just like you don't even get, you know, you drew you drew your card, I'm gonna make you discard it. So right. it's like you, you know, you, you don't even have it. Yeah, it doesn't come up that often, but it's really powerful when it does because it ends the game. Sometimes if you're like, well, I just need one more one more turn. I have Coligan's command. My opponent happens to be hellbent. Discard a card during your draw step. Like, that's it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Grixis Shadow, but Death Shadow card added in Historic Anthology 4 hasn't really made a big impact on Modern. And now we have another awesome unearth spell for it that is basically on plan for either uh, aggressive or maybe a mid-rangey version of shadow decks. I can almost see this card help buoy the last historic anthology and dust shadow in particular. Yeah. I mean, I think that Mardu has been one of the best ones or black white has been one of the best shadow shells that's around in historic. And maybe this one is enough to make you want to run Mardu again. Uh, I still see shadow around a bit. It's it's uh, I know it hasn't quite made an, an impact, but I think it's okay ish. And maybe this does get it there. Yeah, I'm really excited about this card. I, I'm I'm so excited about this card. I didn't think it was gonna happen. Like it's like it's too good. Yeah, and like and just w- incomplete cycle. Totally. I, I'm surprised that they're even doing cycles. I don't think they did any cycles in previous anthologies. And now they're just kind of saying, here's all the cards from a beloved set. Here's all of Dragons of Tark here. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna say what this makes me think again, but you guys can figure out what this makes me think. Just tell us. Hmm. This is a safe space. It's we're never going to that we're never going to get dragons of Tarkir remastered or whatever. Oh. Like we're never going to get that set and mm-hmm. pioneer. But so I think there's evidence to the contrary in this anthology because we got reverse engineer, which was not available as part of Kaladesh remastered. 
and they reprinted it here instead. True, but Reverse Engineer is not a card we're going to speak about again because it is not any good. <laughs> and so... Dave, but, hey Dave, hey Dave. Yeah. Try me. You think I didn't write notes about Reverse Engineer? Oh boy. You kidding me? Okay. That wasn't even playable in draft in that format. That was a standard all-star. Improvise is a powerful effect. All right, anyway, let's finish this up, okay? It's a great card. Colgan's Command, I think we'll see play. I think it's gonna. it might have somewhat far-ranging effects where it could make a full-on mid-range value deck good. It could be good in something like Death Shadow. It could be good, of course, in Pyromancer, Pyromancer slash Arcanist. Um, I just think it's good. It goes into so many decks that everybody that everybody cares about. I think if you were on the border of pay, paying for this historic anthology, because this card's in it for 20 bucks, I'm probably fine paying 20 bucks for four copies of Coligan's command on arena. Honestly, for how long it takes you to get wild cards, like why not? Yeah. Like the entire thing, the entire anthology is worth it to me because of the amount of time I'll get failing with Atarka's command decks. Just like the last one was like worth it to me because of all the time I got to spend failing with death shadow decks. Like that, that's, that's playtime, baby. I still had a, like 70% win rate with shadow. And this, this guy wins. All right. So those are the cycles. They dropped in basically a pair of cards, a, you know, a quasi mini cycle of artifact synergy cards, and then a whole other slew of odd odds and ends that may or may not be good. I think the first two we should mention because they are particularly relevant in constructive decks is Ancient Grudge and Ray of Revelation. Ancient Grudge, one in a red, instant, destroy target artifact. Also has flashback for a single green. Seems good. It could be a two for one. What do we think about this card today? Like this card doesn't really see a lot of play in modern anymore. Right, Shane? Does it still see dredge play? Ancient Grudge? Oh yeah, it's always there. It's got a Ancient specific Grudge. reason that it sees play in dredge. You can, because you can dredge it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, like, I mean, you can, you can turn it over in your graveyard and still have utility out of it. Unless they... Of course, have the worst card ever, Grafdigger's Cage, but you can, you know, you can hit, you can force their hand in terms of their, what, their relic, in terms of their uh, lantern. You can, you can pop, you know, their Tormod's Crypt, like just by being in your graveyard and casting it, and then try to rebuild from there, which is super valuable because it doesn't have to be in your opening hand, like a Nature's Claim does, or uh, the first cast of the Ancient Grudge, for instance. Right. And the other one, Significantly less popular, but a similar card, Ray of Revelation, one in a white, instant destroy target enchantment, and it also has flashback green. Yeah. I mean, do you think that Grudge is going to see cyborg play just because it's still good and there's enough artifact decks to make it worthwhile? I think because it's a single card that can answer two artifacts, it makes it interesting, especially since maybe whatever deck wants to run grizzly salvage which is also an historic anthology and maybe it's the next card we talk about maybe they can actually go hand in hand mm-hmm. i mean what's good about ancient guard is just that it is it can generate two cards of value for one spell and stan <laughs> i think they call that a two for one um what's but what's also good too is i think that there's a lot of signs pointing towards we want you to try an artifact synergy deck here. And so they're sort of building in uh, an increased amount of hate out of the gate. Okay. Play and counterplay, my friends. 
You want to talk about Grizzly Salvage next, and then we'll go back to this other one. Grizzly Salvage, black green for an instant reveal the top five cards of your library. You may put a creature or land card from among them into your hand, put the rest into your graveyard. Some people might recall that this used to see play in Soul Flare, in Pioneer especially. Essentially, you dump a bunch of valuable creatures into the yard to make your Soul Flare good. Hate that deck. It even used to see some play in both modern and pioneer versions of Dredge. And what's interesting about the way this card is templated is because you look at the top five cards, or you reveal them and then put them into your library, graveyard rather, it still triggers Creeping Chill and Narcomoeba. Two cards that are on Arena, but also these aren't cards that you're putting from your hand into the yard. So you are still getting those triggers that occur because they go from your library to your graveyard. Uh-huh important you also have silver smoke ghoul in the format with lightning helix stitcher supplier i don't know maybe maybe grizzly salvage can finally enable like a real dredge-esque graveyard strategy i mean this also might enable your praetor on burial rights deck even to a certain extent in conjunction with faithless looting you know like some reanimator strategy yeah, I think that deck has never been super strong in histor- in Pioneer, I don't think. I mean, it's been like Soul Flayer has had its moments. I think the Dredge decks have had their moments, but I think that they're not exactly powerhouses. And they have access to things like Seder Wayfinder, which is sort of a redundant effect, and other spells that kind of add to that redundancy as well. I don't think Grizzly Salvage gets it there by its lonesome, but as part of a ongoing suite of cards, you will likely need a card like Grizzly Salvage. So yeah, great. Add it to the format. See if people mess with it. Maybe it does some cool stuff. I mean, they're uh, whatever the silver quills or whatever the name of this cool Wither, school Witherbloom. Witherbloom. There might. I think there's. I mean, there's probably some stuff in Witherbloom I'm overlooking because I just haven't looked at it at all. And uh, I mean, it might be there. Have some fun. I think this card's powerful. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it, it not has a lot, potential to be powerful. Not a lot of things do what it does, which is why it's good to have access to an effect like it. Dave, have you ever cast a Dragonstorm? I have not ever cast a Dragonstorm, but... Dragonstorm! I think it's worth pointing out that Dragonstorm was a really good standard deck back in the day when this card was made, and um, it's also been around in the early days of Modern with Storm, where you would ritual off with it and uh, use rituals to, to fuel it, and then you would go get a bunch of dragons, you would get a dragon that would give all your dragons haste, and then you would attack someone for a bunch of a bunch of mana by casting this nine mana spell. It did another thing in early modern. You can play it in Infect and pitch it to Blazing Shoal to give your Infect creature plus nine plus zero and swing for lethal with a little two-card combo. Three-card combo, I guess, if you have an Infect creature on the board. Yeah. Did this get Blazing Shoal banned? No. No, Blazing Shoal got Blazing Shoal banned. <laughs> they would have found Weird. other cards for that for sure. Sure. Uh, you know, I don't know. This card feels like a little bit of a nostalgia moment for me, but I do think that there's always a chance that some somebody will find a way to make something like this interesting. The only problem with it is, of course, there aren't that many rituals. And so what you're looking at here is maybe like a Birgi payoff yeah. or a um, kiln, kiln Artisan or whatever payoff, or uh, what's the one from Ravnica, the one that we always end up talking about, the elemental, you know, that becomes a 4-4 four, four for two. Runaway Steamkin. Yeah, we all, we also have Grinning Ignis. Yeah, that's what I was talking about with Bergy, kind of, as, as part of it. 
Yeah, I think this is very aspirational. That's the theme of the episode, Stan. I'd love to see it, but I think this begs for a new deck. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to balance, right? When you're playing a deck like this with Dragonstorm in it, because you have to have cards that accelerate to it and you have to have cards that you can get off of actually casting it. And so it kind of becomes like, well, what do I do about the cards that say, I don't want to draw, mm-hmm. but I want them to be in my deck. You just play one or two of them. Yeah. I mean, Brainstorm helps with that, but... Yeah. Faithless Looting helps too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... There's another card in this set you guys may have heard of. It's called Intangible Virtue. Sure. Sure is. Sure is a card. One in a white enchantment. So it dies to rare revelation. It says creature tokens you control get plus one, plus one, and have vigilance. Have you ever seen any kind of token-based deck in Historic? I'm not sure I have. No, not in Historic. Not yet. Just another seed planted for the black-white tokens truthers out there. <laughs> Yeah, we do have Young Pyromancer. We do have Sedgemore Witch. We have Legion's Landing. I think we have Raise the Alarm. I know we have Timely Reinforcements. So we have Token Makers. I don't know if Intangible Virtue is the card that they were waiting for, though. Yeah, I mean, the big thing about Intangible Virtue is goes with flyers to make your spirit tokens or whatever suddenly become gigantic. So, I mean, I think... It's not likely to see play until we have a moment like that, but this is a card that people love and I'm glad to see it exist, I think, so that people can try to brew a token style deck around it. Yeah. You know, Angels does make angel tokens. I don't know if they need plus one plus one to be good. (laughs) Don't they already have vigilance too or still do some of them have vigilance or no? I guess some, I guess they don't have vigilance. They're just big, annoying tokens. It's one of those things where I can see like there's some, some ways to make like, crappy tokens like zero power tokens i think that like are sort of more incidental and like if you get that dent like that density of incidentality where it's like hey i'm just making some tokens here and there and like my spells are producing uh you know fairly cruddy zero ones something like that like is watsy would put on a card as like a throw off or like it's something you're supposed to sacrifice or gain life off of or something like that right then turning them into something potentially useful with intangible virtue is an option. I don't know if it's a strong one or even a realistic one. It's just something that sort of pops into mind is like, does it make, does it make something out of nothing? And I'm not sure it does. Yeah. I mean, there are those people that have been playing that card that lets you sack one of your creatures and make a bunch of pests. Like maybe there's something with that where you can make a bunch of pest tokens and have this be the thing that goes with it to make them even bigger. I don't know. Intangible virtue is a cool card though. Yeah. We do have Kaikar Wins Fury in Historic. It's a Jeskai legend from M20. Flying whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create a 1-1 white spirit creature token with flying. Hmm. Hmm. That's synergy. I mean, we have that green-white convoke spell from Ravnica, too, that was pretty popular for a little bit that makes a bunch of tokens. Oh, yeah, March of the Multitudes. Yeah. Yeah, I've tried using that. Can we... Let's, let's, let's move on to cards that are actually going to get cast in Historic, probably. Like Into the North? I mean, I I just want to talk about Into the North for a minute. I'll just read it really quickly. Uh, Into the North is a generic and a green for a sorcery. Search your library for a Snowland card. Put it onto the battlefield. Tap, then shuffle. It's rampant growth. Oh. It's rampant growth for snow cards. Yeah, exactly. Rampant growth, pretty powerful card, actually. It's not not legal in Pioneer. Um, In certain formats, this type of ramping comes in super handy. 
It's two mana to let you search for a card. And this one, now because of what's happened in Kaldheim, searches up duels. And that has never been something that Into the North has has access to in a format that that was possibly a good play until now, because nobody cares about searching up a duel with an Into the North in modern, (laughs) because they have fetch lands. Yeah, in my historic research of decks from history, when it was standard legal, it used to just be playing very fair ramp strategies. Mm Mm-hmm. So now our ramp payoffs are five mana Nissa and ultimatums. And maybe this is just another redundant growth spiral like card to get us there. Yeah. I mean, this is like growth spiral where you always get the land. Right. So at sorcery speed. Yeah. At sorcery speed. That, that is a big distinction, but at least you can fix your mana base with it really easily. That's for sure. All right. Here's a card that I'm certain we'll see play. It's called Relic of Progenitus. Yeah, the what did I? I said that was like the least under the, the most underappreciated card in modern a week or two ago. Yeah, yeah, you did. You did card. say that. Can you believe they added this? Isn't this also kind of a surprise addition, like K Command? Just because not only is it excellent, I wonder if it completely outmodes Lantern. No, you, you still see that in modern, even. Yeah, lots of decks in modern play Lantern over Relic at this just, point. Just because it nabs a card as soon as it comes down. That's a big part of it. And like what a Soul Guide Lantern, I think, is a target player rather than all graveyards. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. This is still pretty nice as it lets you chip away at your opponent because of that tap effect. Mm-hmm. Always annoying to face down sometimes because you sometimes just want a critical mass that you're like working towards in your graveyard. And so like one by one by one keeps that Kroxa in the graveyard Mm -hmm. and just gets important spells out of a, you know, if they've cast a one or two spells that they want to get back with Dreadheart Arcanist and you're getting rid of those, go for it. Yeah. The other big difference about relic versus soul guide lantern is that when you activate relic, it exiles relic. Now, why is that important? Because you can get it with Karn. Sure. You can get it with Karn back. I'm more talking about the fact that you cannot recur it with Luris, which you can do with Soul Guide Lantern. Dave's most overrated card. Hey, I said, I'm just asking the questions, but that is a reason that Soul Guide has started to see a lot more play in modern is because um, you can sacrifice it to draw a card and replay it with Luris where you can't do that with Relic. So and also yeah. this is each opponent's graveyard when you when you sacrifice Soul Guide Lantern. It is not a target. Yeah, so it's it's yes, it's non-targetable, and if you want your own graveyard, you can p- still play it. Yeah, so I think it's a little more confusing. Like the thing that's cool about Relic is that you get that one card every turn. You do not get that with Soul Guide Lantern. So if you have the time, or if you're you're someone who you know the deck that you're playing in can run these maybe main deck because you have the time to do it. A la Tron, what Tron used to do, then yep. uh, maybe Relic is the way to go for you. Up next, Trash for Treasure. Two in a red for a sorcery. As an additional cost to cast a spell, sack an artifact. Return target artifact from your graveyard to the battlefield. Guys, would you say this goes into combo decks, control decks, aggro decks, or mid-range decks? (laughs) Yeah, this is a combo card that we probably will not give its due on our episode. Someone will do something with this that annoys you. Yeah, especially with Faithless Looting. We do have Platinum Angel in the format. We have some other big artifacts from Kaladesh and maybe elsewhere that I'm overlooking. What's that giant, like, 11-11 from Kaladesh? I mean, we even... Metalwork Colossus? Is that what that card is called? Yeah, I think that's the one I'm thinking of. I mean, we even have all of the Gearhulks. 
All of them. Yeah. Every Every one of them. And the red gear Hulk is pretty good. No. Okay. Anyway, next. Here's a card that might actually go in the same deck as trash for treasure. It's Icor wellspring. This is two colorless for an artifact when it enters the battlefield or put into the graveyard from the battlefield. You draw a card. So it's getting you two cards. Yeah, as long as you have a way to kill it. Like, that's the thing that's a little bit tough about it. So you have to find a way to destroy it. Okay, I've got some ideas for you. How about Trash for Treasure? (laughs) How about about Costly Plunder? One in a black instant, sack an artifact or creature, draw two cards. So that's... Crook Clan Ironworks. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. You can use it maybe with something like Pia Nalar. Sure. This used to see play in... I think it still sees play in various popper decks with Atog and Disciple of the Vault. And I was looking for alternative versions of those two cards. And we have Defiant Salvager. It's got a free sack, an artifact or creature, put a 1-1 counter on Salvager. Yeah. Did you just call it Atog? Yeah. Atog. It's a regional accent thing. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I I think Icor is good. It it goes into a lot of artifact-based combo decks maybe we'll see it with like emery and kinnon i think this is going to be a card that sees play in broken strategies yeah uh, on on the broken to useless scale i have it more on the useless but it's only because it costs two which is more than one but this is very close to that point where broken and useless converge so you know that scale that that shane is talking about is more of a donut where (laughs) You, know, you cross from broken to useless pretty quick. There's a short way to go from broken to useless, and there's a long way to go from broken to useless. This one's over by the short way to go from broken to useless. I like that visual metaphor, Dave. Yeah, it's a Taurus. <laughs> let's let's talk about the blue card, my favorite. Stifle, single blue mana instant counter target activated or triggered ability. People are amped about having access to this. I think what it, it sees legacy play or has seen it's like a useful tool in some formats right well it's only legal in legacy vintage and commander yeah i don't know anything about this card there's probably some abilities that we want to be countering but what's this really going to do like is this going to be a sideboard card is this you know is this like a tails end variant what's going on here i think early on we might see people tested in sideboards especially against tainted pact which seems to be cleaning up the floor in historic right now but Whether like, or not tail, it, Tail's End just has to be better than this, right? I mean, but I this know is it, one mana. I know, it costs two and, and and this costs one, but Tail's End does so many more things that you don't get punished for having this just hanging around. There's not even fetch lands to target with this, really. Fabled Passage. I mean, yeah. <laughs> A lot of decks run Fabled Passage. They do. Yeah, it's totally true. Something to think about. Stifle. We have it now. Might be better. Might be better cute than good, but we'll see. And you know what? Maybe it just needs to be a one-up. Yeah. Just to put the fear into him. Yeah. All right. Next up is Merfolk Looter. One of the all-time best limited cards. Book it. I used to love running decks with three. Yeah. In every cube, right? I mean, cube, but even just like drafts, they they don't even make this card anymore because it's too good in draft and never sees constructed play or very infrequently sees constructed play. Um, You have a couple of counter examples here. I I, I do. I I brought counter examples to all of your saying this little devil saw a lot of standard play 10 years apart when it was printed in 2012 i think in a core set paulo vito domino rosa took it to top four of gp orlando mm-hmm. 10 years prior it appeared in a deck that came in second and worlds in a burning atog deck 
six decks of that top eight were Tog decks. So that was a whole era. It's always just a two of, but it is both Merfolk and a Rogue. And I think those are relevant creature types. Though we don't really have a premier Merfolk deck in Historic, we have a lot of Merfolk. Yeah, you have a very reasonable green-blue Merfolk deck you can try. You're probably getting close to a mono-blue one, too. I mean, this card is really good in certain slightly powered-down environments. I have my doubts as to whether it can be worth its space in, in, Rogue, in Historic. Yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine what Rogues wants to take out for this. Although Nothing. I mean, you could discard your Shieldred to this and then Unburial writes it if you want to go that way with it, too. But... um. This is an ex- a really excellent card on rates, but I just don't think it is for historic. All right, reverse engineer. I promised. This card was a staple in Mono Blue Storm during Kaladesh Dominaria Standard, which is now entirely on Arena. Yeah, the Aether Flux Reservoir deck. Yeah. The Glint Nest Crane deck, perhaps even more notably. It was a real deck at the time in that standard environment. I mean, Improvise, which is surprisingly not even on the, the detail text, Improvise basically lets your artifacts tap for the generic mana cost of this. So if you have a lot of cheap artifacts or even expensive artifacts, they can tap too. Uh, you can basically draw three cards for two mana, two blue mana. Yeah, good card. Uh, improvise is a good ability. Yeah, you just said this card was bad. Dave. I don't think I, I had forgotten this particular deck. Yeah, I guess I'd be surprised to see this card see a lot of play, but that ability is powerful. Right. This is it's three blue blue draw three cards, but it has improvised. So the ceiling is blue blue draw three. Yeah. Unfortunately, it is not an instant, uh, which would make it a lot better because when I look at this, sometimes now I'm just kind of like, why not expressive iteration, which is always two mana, mm-hmm. but uh, you can't play it a mono blue then. So, okay, almost done. This is a, a a mini cycle that I like to refer to as cards to play with tempered steel. <laughs> yeah, art, the artifact matters. That's right. We've got Court Homunculus, which is a single white mana for a one white, but it gets plus one plus one as long as you control another artifact. It also happens to be an artifact. I sure loved opening about ten thousand of these in Modern Masters twenty fifteen. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Also in this little cycle is Vault Scourge. It's one and a Phyrexian Black for a 1-1 flying lifelink. So it's essentially a 1-mana 1-1 flying lifelink. Artifact Creature Imp. And finally... Oh, it's an Imp. Imp Tribal. We're good. Good to go. Last one. Maybe a bit of a stretch for the Tempered Steel deck. It's Whirler Rogue. One of the first cards spoiled from Historic Anthology 5. Two blue-blue for Human Rogue Artificer when it enters... It creates two one one colorless Thopter artifact creature tokens with flying, and you may tap two untapped artifacts you control to tap to make a target creature unable to block. Yeah. So you would do that to Alpha Strike your opponent. Oh, Alpha Strike him. Okay. Thank you, Stan. I forgot what that meant. It's good to have that clarification. Yeah, I mean, these are all like incidental role players, potentially. I mean, maybe more. Who knows? Maybe there's an artifact deck out there now with these increased amount of cheap casting cost you know one ones and potential two twos and things like that so why not i I will say court homunculus is actually the one that i'm most interested in because you can maybe pair it with something like toolcraft exemplar ginger Mm -hmm. brute i mean uh, courier thraben inspector into this is a perfectly adequate curve i mean and we're describing a lurus deck so you already have a one good card in your sideboard 
<laughs> you have one good card on your deck at that point. I just feel like maybe we have the tools to do a very low to the crown ground aggressive weenie strategy that maybe top ends at um what's it tempered steel to make your mm-hmm. little weenie stronger. Definitely. I mean, the other card I would mention that I don't think you guys mentioned is uh blink moth nexus fits into that as well as just another artifact payoff. I mean, it was a plant all along. It was a plant. I mean, we knew it was maybe it's a plant for this. I don't know. I mean, I th- they've definitely been pushing the kind of artifact synergies. And so I, I think there's a good chance that you could go back and suddenly realize, Oh wow, we do have a really aggressive white based artifact. And one, one card that's kind of missing from this, that has been good in the past, or maybe it's only good in pauper or whatever is Glinthawk idol, which is from <laughs> original Mirrodin that we need that kind of effect, which is like a flyer for cheap. But I mean, you got vault scourge. What more do you want? <laughs> Yeah. The problem is you don't have something to pump Vault Scourge. Like I don't think you have a good piece of equipment that does adds to it to make it into a really game breaking play, right? Yeah, we need Ghostfire Blade. In yeah, Ghostfire Blade would be really cool, actually, for this type of deck for sure. Wouldn't that be awesome? And maybe why not Insol Artifact? I mean, what we really have is that one in a white enchantment aura that pumps your creature for whatever All the glitters. All the glitters, thank you. Yeah, from auras. Yeah. So I think that is actually that's your cranial plating. Yeah. yeah. And maybe maybe that's what you're running over Tempered Steel because you can't have Tempered Steel in the Luris deck. Mm. God, Luris again. Luris. I mean, that's that's certainly 25 cards. I'm more excited about this, I think, than the last one. Uh, it's it's a little bit funny to like compare this to the Mystical Archives, but I do think <laughs> we do have a lot of we do have power here. I think we I think the the power level rolls off a lot faster than it does in than it did in the mystical archives we do have some pretty strong spells here uh fewer strong creatures i think in terms of historic but i think there's a lot of decent opportunities here for additions to decks maybe even entirely new decks what are you excited to play with day one other than a tarkus command shane i think ancient grudge always has playability um if there is a grizzly salvage deck that'd be pretty cool uh it's nice to have access to relic sure why not if if stifle makes people play the um the combo the thaz's oracle combo deck less than great probably won't it won't yeah <laughs> it won't no way dave day one hit me uh cole against command since you didn't take away my obvious yeah man leader. You, you didn't hamstring him anything else uh i think for me that's the thing i'm the most interested in by a long shot yeah yeah I'd be happy to play a Tarkus command or honestly, Dramokus command. That might be a good, if that starts popping up there, it might be a reason to go and finish one of those company decks. But um, any of those commands I think are sweet. Last question. What's yours, Stan? Oh, it's court homunculus. Yeah. All right. Surprise. Gems or gold. It's going to be gems for me this time. Unfortunately, I have lower gold than I thought because I forgot that they, they love giving you ways to spend your gold before this stuff hits. And so they were like, here's some good, fancy cards here's like i've been i, I still hadn't had a, a, f- a fervent champion so i had to get that for like 2000 just a few things here and there and now i'm like at four i'm like at fourteen thousand gold so i can try to save but i don't think i'll have it in time yeah and that wraps up this week's show if you haven't yet make sure you subscribe to our podcast get the latest episodes as soon as they come out if you use apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review if you want to submit a question to us you can tweet us at the dive down all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. That's also all one word. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon over at patreon.com slash the dive down. 
check it out. We got a Slack. We got swag. What more could you ask for? If you'd like to support the show while playing Magic, you can sign up for a Mana Traders account using coupon code THEDIVEDOWN2021, all one word, with the numbers, 2021 is not spelled out, and get 15% off your first two months of renting Magic online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and try new All right, that's housekeeping. Dave, you keep getting dark and then light and then dark. My monitor is acting up. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it keeps turning off and turning on, turning off and turning on. Highest quality podcast content right Ooh, there. This Acer, I really put it through its paces. You know what I'm saying? The, the, it's, it's Pacers? Yeah, it's Pacers for my Acer.